Hemophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome back to Anglophilia. I'm Kaylee McMahon. I'm Stephanie Callis. And this week, we're going to be discussing one of our favorite, favorite, favorite shows, Faulty Towers. It's been a fun week rewatching all of that. It was such a treat to revisit this. I don't know about you, Steph, but I hadn't actually watched this since the days of Britcom Club in my living room. I think... The last time I saw this must have been 2002, 2003. I had a good revisit of it in college. I think I brought the VHS tapes that I grew up watching to Santa Cruz. You were mentioning last time that Mr. Bean was your first British show and Faulty Towers was mine, actually. Oh, very nice. So it really means a lot to me and my entire family. I think that I was six or seven and... uh, Yeah, I had never seen anything like it. And I don't know if I had seen much of people with accents at all, to be frank. For sure, John Cleese sort of became a fascinating figure for me. I think first and foremost, because as a little kid, I think that I assumed Faulty Towers was like happening now. (laughs) So then around that time, I was shown Holy Grail. And my parents told me that that was made many, many years ago. Oh, and that's Basil Fawlty. And the way everything was kind of clicking, like not only is Basil Fawlty a man named John Cleese who is in this movie and had his own thing called Monty Python, but also this was made not recently. I don't know why my family went on a John Cleese, Fawlty Towers, Monty Python kick in the early 90s. (laughs) Because they're great. I mean, why not? <laughs> but it happened. It was awesome. Yeah. Well, the thing about this show is that the quality of the comedy is so good that it really does feel timeless. And even the parts of it that don't or perhaps shouldn't age that well in terms of political incorrectness, yeah. it's forgivable in a way because the comedy is so strong and it feels current even when it should feel dated. Should we talk about Manuel? Is that is that sort of the elephant in the room after the words political correctness? I mean, there's there's a lot in terms of that. If you, if you want to start talking about the characters, sure, let's start with Manuel. I love Manuel. I think he might be my favorite. Manuel is amazing. We're all rooting for Manuel. You know, a couple years ago, I, I forgot exactly what sort of shitty thing my boss said to me, but I immediately thought of Manuel being hit in the head with a spoon. And I thought, <laughs> that's that's me this morning, right now. Oh, no. Someone has just rubbed a spoon across my face and hit me with it. Um, so, yeah, Manuel is is a complete character. He's a very sweet person. He loves Mr. Faulty. I know, against all reason. I, I think that in a way, Manuel is kind of the great equalizer on the show. When my dad put the tape in, there was just something for everyone. Obviously, my mom and dad understood every joke, or at least every joke that was not purely pertaining to something only an English person would understand. But, you know, my, my parents understood all the jokes. My older brother... He was maybe 10 to 11 at the time. He probably felt like he was, you know, so cool because he got a few of the dirty jokes and was getting to watch a dirty thing with, you know, his parents in the room. I and, you know, my younger brother, too, we just loved Manuel. The comedy is physical. His accent's hilarious. We loved Basil the Rat. We loved Mr. Faulty. I learn. I learn. Like we would, we would go around oh, yeah. saying that. I speak English. I learned it from a book. I thought I was going to die. That is one of my <laughs> earliest memories of seeing something on TV that really, it, it blew my mind how funny that was. Oh, yeah. I, I was going to pass out at seven years old, <laughs> the drunk major 
freaking out and just uh, the image of just Manuel's voice coming from a moose. How are you, sir? <laughs> I can speak English. <laughs> oh, hello, Major. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. It's a beautiful day today. Is it? Oh, yes, yes, I, I suppose it is. Yes, I can speak English. <laughs> I learned it from a book. Did you? Did you really? It was perfect. And my baby brother, who couldn't have been older than four, he's laughing too. And he had a Manuel impression where he would just kind of bend over and do the pathetic little run. It was <laughs> so wonderful sweet. family entertainment, really. It really is. Yeah. It. I mean, it's not quite as uh, age appropriate for everybody as Mr. Bean is, but there is something in it for everybody, even if you don't get it on all levels as a small child. I think for me in my family, the most oft quoted bit was, uh, was Sybil's, oh, I know. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Oh, I know. We say that all the time. That's a, that's a frequent McMahon Coben residence uh, catchphrase. I wanted to mention there was a time where my father was on the phone, and I don't know who he was on the phone with. And he wasn't even saying anything particularly annoying, but my mom and me were, you know, we were sitting next to him. And my mom finally looks at me and says, Oh, I know. <laughs> that's so good. I love that these shows have so many little gems that they can become family inside jokes, you know, across an ocean and decades after the fact. And they're not really inside jokes because they're very popular common references, but like they right. feel personal to you. Like you have some ownership of them because they're so damn good and you love them so much. Sybil, can we talk about how effing fierce her fashion is for a second? Oh my God. I wrote down in my notes, her hair is a masterpiece. It's an architectural work of art. And her purple suit. Yes. Oh. She comes out in a purple suit in one of the episodes. I think I just wrote down purple suit, but she's, she's always looking fantastic. And despite how obnoxious she can be when she's sitting at the bar and she does her laugh, she does know exactly how to deal with guests. Everybody immediately calms down a little bit once Sybil smiles and ignores Basil and steps in. She really is probably the best at customer service, maybe even a little bit more than Polly, who's also great, but Sybil does the fake smile perfectly. Sybil's very charming. Very charming, and she finds a way to go get her hands on a Waldorf salad. Sybil's magic. Uh, the unsung hero of the group. Apparently, Sybil's famous braying laugh was actually based on Connie Booth's laugh. Because <laughs> something that we haven't mentioned, for those who don't know, which I hope you do know because you've been watching this show and seen all the episodes, this show was created and written by John Cleese and Connie Booth, who of course play Basil and Polly respectively, and who were married at the time of the first season then got divorced about a year after the first season, and then several years later wrote the second season, and it was apparently an amicable split, and apparently they're still on good, friendly terms to this day, which makes me very happy. I would be so sad to hear otherwise. Oh, where did you read that? There's a documentary that's available in its entirety on YouTube called Faulty Towers Reopened. Really? And it was a retrospective that was made in uh, 2009, which marked the 30-year anniversary of the conclusion of the series. And it's delightful. I'm going to be quoting from it liberally and stating a lot of fun little facts that I learned from it. But you should definitely check that out. Oh, excellent. Yeah. To hear the cast and crew tell it, 
you really couldn't even tell that anything was different between them during the second season. Well, that's good to know because I would hate to see a Faulty Towers without Polly because that really truly would just devolve into complete pandemonium, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I think that she's probably the most underappreciated character. I mean, even as we're saying, oh, you know, all these other characters are so funny, but you do need a straight man. You need the one who's holding it all together. And I think that it's sort of easy to overlook both Polly and Connie Booth's contribution. But of course, like she's completely essential to the series because she fucking co-created and co-wrote it. Even in the documentary, she is kind of downplaying her own contribution to it. But like, that's such a female thing to do. I don't believe her. I think that she was, of course, essential to the show's success. No, that is such a female thing to do. I, I feel terrible about that because back to the moment where... I was being treated poorly at work one day and I I immediately thought about Manuel. That actually inspired me to kind of go back and watch Faulty Towers. And I was looking at Polly and I was marveling at how cool and collected she remains despite everything around her. And by everything, I mean Basil screaming (laughs) and how everything is a fucking travesty to you, Basil. Oh, yeah. Well, now should we use that as a transition to talk about Basil, who's one of the great flawed characters of all time? What can you say? It's like, he's completely out of line. He's absolutely out of line. And it would drive me crazy to know him. But there are times where he doesn't hold his tongue and you do agree with him. Well, the thing that makes you love him in spite of all of his terrible behavior and his abuse is that it's coming from a very real emotional place. His primary driver is, of course, anger. And it's not, it's sort of like an impotent rage, because even though he he definitely does, you know, hit Manuel a lot and, and do a lot of damage there, you don't get the sense that he's, you know, a dangerous person no, other than that. Like, he's, he's not going to, like, bring in a gun. I mean, that's not really an English thing to do anyway. But, you know, you don't get the sense that he's going to snap and murder a bunch of people one day. It's His rage is always just sort of boiling under the surface, and it's hidden by a very tense smile that adds to the comedy. It's, it's the restraint that makes it so funny. Right. Now, another quick thought on his marriage. I was thinking about this as I was watching, and it's probably something I didn't think about as a kid, but now as woman in my 30s, I I look at them and I kind of go, you know, okay, what what happened here? Because there is more than one joke about how it could be better. And when they're in their separate beds, which is, it's a TV thing, it's not a Basil and Sybil thing, but they are obviously a lot cooler with it than, say, Lucy and Ricky were. Lucy and Ricky were all over each other, and then they would go to their separate beds, and it made no sense. But Basil's reading Jaws, and Sybil is reading Sexy Laughs, and they're perfectly content to be in their separate beds. And then yet, when Basil thinks the psychiatrist is asking him how often they bang, (laughs) the answer is a couple times per week? Well, he's lying, obviously. Is he? Oh, definitely. Do you really think? think? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, also, I think you said that it's a TV trope to have the the husband and wife in separate beds. It is, right? That was certainly true in America in the 50s, but I don't know about in England in the 70s, because this is a show that has the word twats on a sign in one of the openings. And it's got, you know, a blow up sex doll and all these other really wildly inappropriate things. I don't think... I mean, Monty Python had like full on tits in one of their episodes. I don't think that that it was a I think it's more a commentary on their marriage. The tits probably has to do with what time things aired, right? Because isn't it like after nine, the BBC just becomes baby oil and nipples quoting quoting coupling right now. But (laughs) (laughs) maybe 
sounds like fun. <laughs> okay. No, perhaps he is lying. Okay, because I th that definitely gave me pause. I went, whoa, no way. Hello. No, no, he just wants to, he says, what's, well, what's normal? I mean, I think that he just wants to not appear crazy and repressed to the psychiatrist. I think that that's what that's about. Because if one of them is repressed, it's Basil, 100%. Oh, oh absolutely. No, yeah. I think I think Sybil knows how to have fun. Sybil? Yeah. Sybil's keeping it tight. <laughs> um, Basil, <laughs> uh, back to his emotional state. Something that makes him so funny is that he cares so much. And you see that right away in the first episode when his first grievance is that he really wants to attract, you know, a higher class of customer. And that's, of course, when he gets duped by the very obvious con man who pretends to be a lord. And uh, you can tell that there's, uh, you know, a real sort of wounded quality to the fact that he is not part of the upper classes and that he, he puts a lot of stock in the British class system and he feels left out and hurt. And that's where a lot of his rage comes from. In fact, I'm going to play a clip from the documentary where John Cleese speaks on this exact subject. The primary emotion is that the poor fellow is unloved. And he feels unloved. And therefore, he is constantly in a state of irritation. Isn't that... I mean, because that's what it is. There's No one is just an asshole for the sake of being an asshole. Even the the most awful person that you can think of, I think we know which public figure slash president mm. we're thinking of. There's some sort of real psychological basis for all of their shittiness. And it makes you it makes you feel for him when you realize his humanity, even when it's cloaked under all of the the thinly veiled rage and the ridiculous flailing. I guess that is true. I mean, I don't hate Basil. I couldn't oh, if no, I tried. No, I love Basil. I wouldn't want to stay in his hotel or be married to him. At the same time, I would rather hang out with him than Larry David. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. Talking about American equivalents, because I did not know this fact before Kaylee shared it with me last week. I had no idea there were American attempts at bringing faulty towers to this side of the globe. The remakes were called... What's the one starring B. Arthur in the Basil Fawlty role? Amanda's. Amanda's. And the other one is Pain. Never was there a more aptly titled sitcom than Pain. It's spelled P-A-Y-N-E. The character's Royal name is... Royal Pain. Oh, it's terrible. You know, I did watch an episode of it in its entirety. They're all on YouTube. Check them out. Don't check them out. <laughs> Do you hate our listeners, Stephanie? Please check them out. Please <laughs> no. check them out on YouTube and watch for 10 At your own risk. It was fascinating to, to watch them because it's just a reminder of what makes something work and what doesn't. It doesn't just work to have there be a guy who is annoying. And I was thinking all week, like... I do think that perhaps Curb Your Enthusiasm is an accidental Faulty Towers remake that works on its own in a way that the remakes do not. Interesting. I, th I feel like that's the only other example I can think of of a character who says the wrong thing, tells the truth all the time, despite the fact that you really shouldn't, and is obnoxious. Yeah. Now, there are people in the Curb Your Enthusiasm world who keep voluntarily hanging around Larry, and I don't get why. In, in, in Faulty Towers, you're kind of stuck with him, which is why I think that that ultimately works better. But yeah, if, if we're to point to an American Faulty Towers, it's Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's not Pain or Amanda's. I think that that's a pretty astute observation because also the, the structures of the plots of the Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes are very farcical and they all sort of get tied up in a bow 
in the same way that, that the Faulty Towers episodes do. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the American remakes. I just want to say that another thing that makes them not work is that they don't get that core humanity and the fact that Basil cares so much about anything. They're so they're so blasé, which is what it, it's surprising to me because you would think that Americans usually we go in the exact opposite direction. We make things less subtle. I'm surprised that they didn't have someone not exactly Nicolas Cage, but in that same vein of somebody who's going to explode. Like I would actually kind of love to see a terrible remake starring Nick Cage, just like biting people's heads off. But um, the mullet is wrong. <laughs> Why is it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but instead, they've done a pendulum swing in the complete opposite direction, and they have the characters be sort of like snarky and snide for no real reason except to be kind of cool. And to me, the definition of someone cool is someone who doesn't care. There's no, they're just kind of unpleasant for the sake of being like, huh, here's a here's a one-liner that is not particularly snappy in its own right. But you don't get a sense that they give a shit about any of the people in their lives, that they are invested in their business, that they're even particularly annoyed by the guest. It's more just like, well, I'm a world-weary person and I'm gonna say something about it. Like, it's so lifeless. I'm completely with you. Now, you keep saying Basil cares, and I do agree, but you also kind of can't help but wonder at some point, like, now why are you doing this? Because where is the joy? Basil, you managed to just suck the joy out of everything. Are you going to be happy if Gourmet Night works out? But again, as you keep saying, you do get the sense that there is a promise of Basil being happy. He's going to get in his own way and completely prevent himself and everyone else from getting there. But you see the motivation, whereas, yeah, B. Arthur is just kind of a surly older lady. Yeah, she just has one setting. Whereas Basil, uh, Sybil actually points out something in a later episode that I had written down in my notes in an earlier episode, that he he has two different settings, basically, where he's either spitting poison at them or he's essentially crawling up their butts. And it's really hilarious to watch him vacillate between these two extremes. And also his emotions, he, you know, he, he frequently shakes his fist at the sky to say, oh, thanks, God. Or if, if something turns around, then he'll turn on a dime and say, oh, actually, thank you, God. He gets so happy by the tiniest little switches of fortune. Like when, when one disaster is averted temporarily, he'll be very grateful and happy. And then, of course, disaster will ensue tenfold and he'll be even angrier than before and it's delightful to go on that ridiculous emotional roller coaster with him i can't help but wonder what a third season might have looked like maybe that would have been overkill yeah because one day he's just gonna drop dead of a stroke <laughs> and and we all know it and we don't need to see it and I do kind of wonder, you know, how many more situations can we put this guy in before it just becomes John Cleese screaming? And so on one hand, it's that duality. It's I, I want more Faulty Towers. I'm so glad there's not a single bad episode of Faulty Towers. Absolutely. I'm going to actually quote one of my favorite musicals, Merrily We Roll Along, which is about the dissolution of a partnership and friendship of uh two best friends who are a songwriting team. And there's this one part where they're at this fancy party for a producer and they play a song from their new show and everyone is clapping and fawning all over them. And then the composer says, oh, they want to hear it again. They think that we were great. And then the lyricist says, you know what true greatness is? It's knowing when to get off. 
apparently John Cleese, they, they tried really hard to get them to make a third series, but he said no. And I really respect him for that because I think that a lot of lesser artists would, would cave to the pressure and the money, but to have the, those incredibly high standards for yourself and to know when you've reached your peak, because for me, we mentioned Basil the Rat earlier. That was my favorite episode as a kid. And I think that that's actually their funniest episode to end on such a high note. I can't think of any other TV show where the final episode is my favorite. I think it's one of the funniest episodes as well. And I too loved it as a kid. And yeah, that might be because of the hijinks involving animals. You know, there's there's a cat. Oh, the cat's okay. There's there's a rat. But you get to see just so much humanity in, in Manuel over his sadness about them taking away oh, his hamster. It's absolutely his best showcase episode. He has yeah. so many great lines and faces. Yes. I love him. I love him. And and can we also talk about how damn sweet it is that he names his beloved pet rat after his abusive dickhole of an employer? He loves the real Basil so much. I know. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to quote the documentary again. Andrew Sachs, when he's talking about Manuel, he says, The way I see Manuel, he's a very happy man. Even though he's being abused by everybody in the hotel, I think he's happy because I guess he comes from a big family, 10, 11 people maybe, his kids. And to be noticed there at all in Barcelona or wherever it was, you have to get the attention on you, do something naughty, get hit. The British family he was adopted into, that is the, the uh, faulties, represented his father and mother in a way and he knew he was being appreciated because they hit him a lot. <laughs> it's, it's such a fucked up psychology but I think there's some truth to it. That actually reminds me of one of the most annoying things I found about Amanda's, the B. Arthur take on Faulty Towers, which is there's all this goddamn backstory and exposition that you don't get in the original Faulty Towers because you don't, you don't need it. You don't need it. I don't need to know how they all ended up in Torquay and now have a hotel called Faulty Towers. They tell you in the first episode that Basil panders to people with money and that's all you need to know. And they tell you that Manuel is from Barcelona. Polly naturally, you know, talks about how she paints. But in Amanda's, you have Amanda's son going, Mom, when I went to hotel school, they taught me that you have to manage things, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I don't need to know that Amanda's son went to hotel school. How is this? How is this something? So yeah, thank goodness there's no like Manuel monologue about how every, everyone hates me in, in, in Barcelona. Because though Andrew Sachs probably would have been amusing, I, I just respect that he had that in his head and he made it work and he communicated that through his own acting and his own comedy rather than writing the damn thing in there. Because that's just a snooze fest. Yeah, and another thing that I think makes this such a perfect sitcom is that I can't think of any other show where you could watch any episode at any time in any order. Because you mentioned earlier that like you would have loved to have seen another season because at some point he's going to give himself a stroke and kill himself. <laughs> but um, the last episode and the first episode, you could switch them and it wouldn't make a bit of difference. I just showed a friend. I was shocked that, that my sister's roommate had never seen any Faulty Towers. So I showed her several random episodes yesterday and she, you know, 
obviously uh-huh. was right up to speed because you don't need to know anything except the names of the four characters. No, you absolutely don't. And I think that I never really watched them in order until recently. Childhood, it was always the highlights were obviously the Germans. Yeah. Uh, gourmet night. Communication problems. When Sybil's comforting Mrs. Richards, who has, you know, banged her head. But Basil just mimes something between his thumb and forefinger and says, is this a piece of your brain? And that was, again, one of those childhood moments where I thought, that's real comedy. This is real quality stuff that I'm seeing right now. And my older brother and I used to say that to each other all the time. Is this a piece of your brain? (laughs) That's so good. Yeah, let's talk favorite episodes. Uh, We already mentioned Basil the Rat. My other favorites as a kid were Kipper and the Corpse, mm-hmm. obviously the Germans, and Waldorf Salad was one that I rewatched a lot. I just, I love the little fake fight when he beats himself up pretending to be the chef. That's a fantastic payoff. And also I think that I found that episode funny because it was the first time that I ever heard a non-American actor putting on an American accent, and I found his accent so ridiculous. It's, it's that, so ridiculous. I want a Waldorf Salad. Oh, I want a Waldorf it's salad. so not convincing, but I love it. It's like it. a weird, like, angry Humphrey Bogart thing but but not quite but it's but it's perfect for that to be you know basil has met his match in mr hamilton mm-hmm. who wants a waldorf salad He's such a dick I'm, I'm completely on basil's side and that uh, you know the customer is not always right they're often right when they're up against basil faulty but but mr hamilton can go fuck himself <laughs> go back to america but when basil saw the waldorf salad materialize on the table which totally sybil just went and got somewhere i hate that basil then takes it away like to look <laughs> at it and to make sure that it's real it's like no 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 don't why why no it's like why are you taking away the waldorf salad it's done there it is yeah well it's a case of like the competent women saving the day from the incompetent men i also think that the fact that this show was co-created by a man and a woman really helps i love that there's a gender balanced cast, which is something we still don't even see in 2018 very frequently. And the fact that the women are so funny and smartly written and completely the ones who are holding this entire ridiculous operation together. True. I think that a lot of credit can be given to Connie Booth because in the documentary, uh, John Cleese was saying that she originally wrote mostly for Sybil and Polly and he wrote mostly for Basil and Manuel because he said she said something like, oh, a woman would never say that. And he went, oh, really? And it was really helpful to have a woman's voice in the room, which it always fucking is. So learn that television decision makers. <laughs> well, and it's I, I, I'm so happy that you're you're bringing this up again, because that's the image that the entire series ends on. They accidentally serve the rat in the tin of biscuits to the health inspector. And then Sybil and Polly just just take it away. They remove the rat and then they come back and Sybil's just pouring the shocked health inspector coffee and Polly opens up the tin of biscuits and Sybil says, you know, something about the weather. And then you see them dragging an unconscious Basil out of the room while, while Sybil just smiles and Polly's smiling and they're acting as if nothing happened. And yet we're the emotional gender. Well, and isn't it Manuel who's dragging Basil away? Yeah. So it's, we've got the women and the person of color getting it done. And immigrants, we get the job done. I remember as a kid, they're in, in the communications problems episode where Basil has secretly bet on a horse called Dragonfly and he's he won some money on the horse. And of course, Sybil being, you know, a wife doesn't doesn't like that. And she says to Basil, if I find out that you bet on that horse, you know what I'll do. And she leaves the room and Basil says to himself, you'll have to sew him back on first. 
I asked my mother at age, you know, six or seven, what does that mean? And she kind of explained the castration to me, but I still didn't quite understand why anyone would ever do that. So I assumed <laughs> that it must have been for birth control because my... <laughs> Because that's terribly progressive of you. <laughs> oh, no, well, well it's, I think it's because I had I had a younger brother and my mom was reading all the books on how to answer the questions that your older children are going to have. So, you know, she told me very clinically X, Y and Z. And I think she also told me that my dad had a special operation to make sure that there weren't going to be any more kids. So I think I assumed that you'll have to sew them back on meant that you know, Basil's balls were gone, so they wouldn't have any children. I, I, did, I didn't know that it was just, oh, well, women, you know, go around yeah. metaphorically cutting men's dicks off. <laughs> Can you imagine how horrible it would be if they had children, how fucked up those kids would be? <laughs> now that is something to, oh my goodness. Oh. Ooh, that's something to think about. Because Amanda clearly has a child who went oh, to yeah. hotel school. <laughs> or hotel management school. Hotel school. <laughs> hotel That's school. such a childlike thing to say. Now, do we know much about the major? What What is the major's deal? Is Is he well off and living in a hotel in Torquay and getting hammered? I don't know. I don't know that we do know the major's deal. And again, I think that it speaks to the strength of the material that we don't need to know. And we don't even wonder what anybody's backstory is. Because what you see is what you get. And what you get is perfectly enough. Right. It is kind of the perfect location for characters to just come in and out and you don't need to know more than the interactions they share between the people who are running the hotel. Well, you do know that it was based on a real person, right? I remember reading that on the back of my fantastic VHS collection. Yes, yes. All the pythons were, were down in Torquay filming some stuff for Flying Circus, and they stayed at a hotel where uh, Donald Sinclair, I think his name was, was exactly as, as cantankerous and as put off by the simplest of requests, like, oh, you want a wake-up call at a quarter to six? Oh, fine, I'll do that, shall I? And, and, uh, and was really appalled by Terry Gilliam's American and table manners and like we don't eat like that in this country like just and they were all like this is really weird what this guy's such a character and oh I'm, i imagine if they hadn't ever stayed there we would have been deprived of one of the greatest fictional characters of of all time in, in television comedy well thank goodness kind of for angry customer service people because you really do encounter them <laughs> kind of more often than not that's not been my experience Really? Well, maybe not more often than not, but but they're out there. Absolutely. Sometimes like a ready-made character will just walk into your life and provide all the inspiration you need to create something wonderful. Um, I think we should bring up the topic of political incorrectness, because that's obviously something that's changed a lot in the last, what, 40, 45 years. I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, I'm kind of of two minds with this one because I think that a lot of a lot of modern shitty white male comedians will uh, decry the, the PC police and how it's ruining comedy. But really, I think today being politically correct just means not being a blatant asshole. And I think that political incorrectness back in the 60s and 70s, back when 
it really was more about bringing up taboos that you really couldn't discuss previously. I think that it had more of a place rather than now, like nothing's off limits, nothing's taboo. And it's just shitty to be making the same jokes that hurt the same people who are already oppressed. So when I defend political incorrectness, my social justice warrior part of myself goes like, oh, no, like I bristle at the idea of it. But I think that the political incorrectness of the show is one of its charms for sure. And obviously the episode, The Germans, comes to mind. It's it's so masterful. I do wish that the major didn't say the N-word. That part really did make me cringe. And my friend who had never seen the show before also went Ugh, out loud. Um, yeah. So that that's uncomfortable and I think unnecessary. I don't think that you need to show just how out of touch the major is. But again, I, I mean, I'm going to quote, John Cleese, in the documentary, he said... Nobody could take the major as any, anything other than a lovable old idiot. So you see, there's two ways of criticising an opinion. One is to criticise it direct, and the other is to voice the opinion in a character who is ridiculous. Right. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But at the same time, you know, people might be hurt by hearing that very triggering word. So I, I, I kind of see both sides. But meanwhile, uh, The Germans is an episode that is very well loved by the a vast majority of the German people. <laughs> and John Cleese described that one of the best moments in his life was when he was in, I think, a, a hotel in, in Hamburg. And some guy from across the lobby shouted at him, hey, John, don't mention the war. <laughs> and then everybody else in the lobby just burst into laughter. And I think that's just such a lovely little story of how comedy really can bring people together and... Uh, and sometimes by mentioning things that are awkward or uncomfortable, you end up burying the hatchet and, and mending things. Oh, absolutely. Because the while he's saying horrible things about Nazi Germany, the joke is on Basil, not 100%. on these very polite German guests. And the joke is on, you know, English stuffiness and saying, you know, who won this thing anyway and all that kind of stuff. The joke's on Basil. It's not on the German. That's the thing. The joke always has to be on the person who is saying the ridiculous thing. And I think that frequently that's not the case. But but Basil is absolutely the butt of the joke. He's the butt of almost every joke. And uh, and same thing with Manuel. Even even when Manuel is kind of the butt of the joke, our sympathy is still with him. We're not thinking, haha, that stupid Spanish-speaking immigrant who doesn't know anything. Thinking, no. Oh my God, stop being such a terror to this poor boy. <laughs> no, it's funny when Manuel says, que? Because you know that hilarity is going to ensue because something is not going to get done that needs to get done. That's what's funny. It's because you know him. It's not because, oh, ha ha, he's, he's dumb and he's still learning English. Yeah. You know what it's eventually going to, to mean for the situation. On that topic, something that I'm sort of surprised by is that on Gourmet Night, we do have that drunk French chef fall in love with Manuel. Mm -hmm. And there's not a single homophobic joke that's made. It's just very matter of fact that this fat drunk chef, or maybe he's not even drunk. I think he falls in love with Manuel oh, no, no, and he's, Manuel he's refuses him and then he gets drunk. Yes, no, that's what it is. Yeah, Manuel, he doesn't love me. I want Manuel! Yeah, they don't. Uh, yeah, I really liked that. I mean, that did seem very progressive, even though obviously it is a source of comedy. They don't make horrendously homophobic jokes. I think that there's just one thing about like, oh, he's Greek. Like they they invented it. Like there, there's just like a couple little jokes, but it's nothing. 
Oh, I forgot about that line. He's not French. Oh, he is Greek, huh? No, yeah. you're right. Okay. Yeah, but I, but no, I just, I, I remember making a note of that because it seemed pretty progressive that it was just sort of not a big deal that he wasn't reviled or or punished for that in any way. It was just, it was the fact that he was drunk and letting it interfere with his work that was causing the problem. But um, it's encouraging, but it's also hugely depressing to me when I see shows that are 45 years old that that are less terrible than things now in terms of how they treat women minorities and and gay people could you imagine i don't know if that particular subplot is revisited at any of the american remakes but could you imagine the greek gay chef showing up on an american sitcom yeah and maybe it would be funny but it would it would be it would be gay joke innuendos everywhere and it would be completely overdone we never actually see the chef hit on Manuel or proposition Manuel. It's all done off screen. And all all we see is the aftermath and him screaming, I want Manuel. And it's really, really funny. Yeah. And there's no there's no stereotype being played into. There there you don't see him being super camp and over the top. It's it's kind of sympathetically treated, which is kind of lovely. And the comedy in this is always so strong that they don't rely on cheap shots. And that's something that, going back to my usual stance against political incorrectness, is that most things that are considered politically incorrect are just, you know, well-worn territory of the same basic jokes, the same racist, sexist assumptions that are all predicated on these supposed truths that are not actually true, that we've heard a million times before. So in addition to being a hurtful and instrumental in oppressing whole groups of people, they're also just not funny because they're not new. And this comedy, for the most part, is so hilariously original. I mean, even though it's a classic, you know, farce formula, it's just the the comedy has to be surprising. And these jokes are so surprising. Even when I've already seen them, they're surprising. No, you're you're right. Do we want to talk about just physical violence and how it's used on this show? That's another thing that I think has sort of fallen out of fashion, but it's so funny on this show that I completely forgive it. I, I forgive it too. I, I jump for joy when Manuel sets himself on fire. Oh, yeah. Or whenever anybody slaps somebody, when Polly slaps the old lady and she goes down and Basil says, oh, spiffing, two two dead, 25 more to go. There's just, <laughs> there's so much fantastic slapstick comedy in this. And and I will give it a pass. Like every time Basil says or does something terrible to Manuel, it's, you know, you, you cringe, you feel for Manuel, you're sympathetic, but I will give it a pass in the same way that I give Homer Simpson a pass for throttling Bart uh, you know, child abuse is not funny. That would not be made now, but since it was a, a gag, <laughs> pun intended, uh, <laughs> that, he, that, that started in the 80s, it's like a grandfather clause, I think, that I still, I think that it's okay, even if I wouldn't accept it in something new now. Oh, I, I totally get it. Not not to mention that Basil suffers a fair amount of, you know, physical, you know, pain as well. He oh, falls yeah. off ladders and he sprays a fire extinguisher in his own face. He gets slapped a lot. Yeah. And, and then there's there's the great episode where he keeps like accidentally sitting on people and everybody catches him. He's sitting on <laughs> Manuel with the frying pan over his head and the French lady yes. sitting on him. And he even uh. does do his silly walk. And he does also do oh his impression God. of a duck on Gourmet Night. It's, yes. it, it's physical comedy that's both violent and nonviolent. And that kind of helps the whole thing 
be be expected in yeah. in this world and in this hotel this is how people act i mean it's very it's very silly and and sort of over the top and similarly with his rage it doesn't feel like it's consequential. It feels like cartoon violence in the vein of Looney Tunes rather than in the vein of South Park where you actually see blood and somebody dies. You know what I mean? It's like there's a sense of remove. Um, there's something I think about also John Cleese's hilariously tall, lanky, awkward, flailing frame. Uh He's such a good physical comedian. And I think that that makes him less threatening. Like if he was, you know, built like an army guy, then yeah, that would be really terrifying to see somebody have these temper tantrums. But like, he's just a, he's an, you know, impotent stick insect. And he, when he hits somebody, it doesn't feel scary. It just feels like, <laughs> oh, you. You can even forgive him for repeated accidental boob groping. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, she does. She, the, the Australian woman does forgive him. So, so we can. She as well. is very cool about it. She's, yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like I personally wouldn't be because especially that first boob grab is creepy to boot because she's just stretching against that wall and Basil's hand appears out of nowhere and gets all up in it. It goes on for a while. While you wouldn't immediately scream, um, it, it is beyond me. The boob groping, it's a means to an end because it's all set up for the hilarious misunderstanding. That's that's such a good episode. I love when he constantly gets caught spying on the wrong people and having to pretend to check the doors and the walls. Like it's a fantastic running gag. And I, I love it windows. so much. Yeah. Oh, and so I will admit this right here. I, I I don't care. As a very young girl, I was kind of fascinated by that Australian woman's incredible boobs. Sure. I, I couldn't stop staring at him. It was a little bit scandalous. Mm -hmm. I mean, keep in mind, what else was I watching? Nickelodeon, the Disney Channel, and the Simpsons. There wasn't cleavage. There was butt cleavage on the Simpsons, but it was Homer's. <laughs> but we're talking like a, an actual woman. When when she bends over to show Basil her necklace, I, I kind of went, oh. <gasps> Oh, what what is this? You know, it was it was a lot yeah. for for a kid to see on TV for sure. Imagine how your brothers felt. <laughs> I have never asked them. I should that they probably won't remember. But yeah, I do. I do yeah. wonder. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, we all knew how to work yeah. the VCR too. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing about Polly and, and women holding things together, and this is something I thought about when I was watching the other day, because I'm I'm listening to Hillary Clinton's What Happened on tape, and she's talking about emotional labor and women taking on the task of thinking of things that the men are clearly not thinking about. And during mm -hmm. the fire drill, when Basil is yelling at Polly, why aren't you upstairs? You're supposed to do the upstairs. And she goes, hey, wait a minute. I'm only here at mealtimes and on these days. Who's going to check the upstairs on times when I'm not here? Mm -hmm. And he just doesn't have an answer because it's never crossed his mind. Right. It's something that you encounter all the time. And I, I love that a moment like that is on a sitcom. And I also love that, you know, I think it is a very common comedy trope to have the women be competent and like not funny nags and for the men to be the silly, goofy ones. But I like that the women in this are also allowed to be funny. Oh, yes. Like they're they're just as funny as the men, even if they're also allowed to be competent at the same time well yeah they're they're funny like women are funny they don't try to make the women just as crazy and zany as the men which 
they would have completely lost me if they did that. Yeah. Because if you had Sybil screaming back and being, you know, funny looking and physical, it would just be a dumb show. Yeah. And a dumb show. And you do need a straight man to keep it all together. And I think that Polly is certainly the anchor. Polly is certainly the anchor, but she's allowed to be whip smart and not just a Girl Scout. Yeah, yeah. She has funny lines It's not like she comes on screen and she's one of those characters where you go, oh, no, you dead space. It's not like she's, you know, Mike from the young ones or anything where it's like, what's what a waste (laughs) of a character. (laughs) Mike, the cool person. Uh, Yeah, that's a whole other episode of the show, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, I think. Oh, my goodness. No, Polly is not Mike from the young ones, although at the same time. Without Mike, I don't know. We should we should think about that when we yeah, watch. Yeah, maybe maybe I've spoken too harshly. To be fair, like Faulty Towers, I haven't revisited that since probably about two thousand two, two thousand three. So I'm gonna maybe reassess some things. There is a great, really early Mitchell and Webb sketch though, where they're supposed to be two guys writing the Bible, <laughs> and it's as if they're modern like screenwriters or something who are a duo. And they're debating the significance of the Holy Ghost and whether or not they need to include the Holy Ghost. And Robert Webb says he's like Mike from the Young One. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Oh my God, that's that's it's it's like wow. This is that's genius. That's so good. That's so good. Thinking about writing things as a duo. These episodes are so they're so tightly constructed. They're such perfect farce. Every single beat is beautifully laid and then paid off later. And John Cleese and Connie Booth spent, I think, about six weeks writing a single episode. Okay. And about two and a half of those weeks would be before they even wrote a single line of dialogue, they were just constructing the plot. And that's something that I just love about British TV is that by virtue of having such short seasons, they have the luxury to put that kind of time in. Because if you did that for an American show where there's 24 episodes, that would take you about three years just to write a single season. Um, I'm really impressed by your math. It really shows, thank you. Uh, it really shows how much time went into it. You you absolutely can see the work on the page, or on the screen rather. Uh, and also another thing is that all of these episodes ran long. There's not a single one that's under 30 minutes. They're usually 32 to 35 minutes, but they feel short because they're so action-packed and there's not a single moment or a joke that's wasted. It's very fast-paced, very tight. Uh, You never feel that anything is lagging. And then sort of the opposite thing is that I was so surprised that there are only two seasons because my memory of watching it as a kid was that there were infinite. I thought, oh no, it's going to be a long time to to revisit this, but it's only it's only 12 episodes, but because they pack so much into it and because there's not a single bad episode or weak link, it feels like so much more. The episodes feel short, but like there are a lot of them. I'm happy that you said that because it wasn't until I started re-watching Faulty Towers with you in high school that I even realized that The Germans is the same episode as The Moose. Yeah. Which is also the same episode as The Hospital. Any one of those set pieces would be enough to make an episode a memorable classic. But the fact that they can pack them all into that one, I mean, it's it's just stunning what they did. Yeah, because again, as a kid, that moose, that moose moment changed my life. And I I can kind of remember the first time I saw it. And I'm wondering if my parents were maybe watching it without me and they called me in to show me the moose. Either way, we rewound it many, many times. Oh, sure. And it became one of my favorite things in the world. And 
my eyes are actually getting a little bit damp as I think about what a perfect moment that must have been for my parents is to be showing their very young children the moose and to watch them like scream with glee and beg again again and it's something that you got to watch yourself in the 70s with your parents oh yeah Uh, honestly yeah one of the big reasons that I want to have kids is to be able to share all of the things that I love with them and to see it through fresh eyes again yeah, and your mom got to do that, mm-hmm. and my parents didn't realize what, what they were doing when they showed me Faulty Towers. They knew, oh, this is going to crack them up. This will be a fun thing for us to do as parents with cute little kids. Yeah. But they also really freaking ruined my life in a way <laughs> because here I am, <laughs> and I'm 31 years old, and I'm talking about Faulty Towers with you while I'm in Los Angeles and you're in New York City. How how did they ruin your life? They made your life amazing. This is exactly what I want to be doing on a Sunday night. No, they they absolutely did. But maybe my life would have been easier if I was just into the Big Bang Theory. I mean, there'd be more material to go over, but like, I don't know. I think that my mom knew exactly what she was doing. She was very much <laughs> like the pusher, getting her clients addicted early. And uh, yeah. No regrets. Thanks, mom. No, thanks. Thanks, parents. Thanks. Thanks, parents everywhere <laughs> who show their kids weird shit and know that it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Oh, I want to talk about the anagrams at the beginning of, I think it's only in series two, they have the anagrams on the marquee outside. Um, Those are so good. And did you know, those were actually come up with by a production assistant? Oh, that's awesome. This is another thing that I learned in the documentary. There was a production assistant named Ian McLean, and uh, he was really into crosswords. And someone said, oh, Ian, you're into crosswords. Figure out some some anagrams. And the only one of those that is actually a true anagram without having to take out any extra letters is <laughs> flowery twats. Okay. Which also, th- that was the first time that I ever heard the word twat. Same. <laughs> that, that was my introduction. Uh, twat and ratatouille were two words that I learned from this show. Oh. And I've never forgotten either. <laughs> you know, I hadn't I hadn't thought about ratatouille, but no, that's that's correct for me as well. He put basil in ratatouille. I didn't it's make no bloody ratatouille. Okay, how hot is Terry? Do you disagree? Uh, he's you go for it, Steph. Not my type, but carry on. Okay. I mean, I was I was rewatching it, you know, last week and I went, "Oh, hey, hey Terry." Okay. You're you're in maybe three episodes. Okay, fine. I'm I'm alone in that cool. one. We, we have we have a lot of overlapping taste in other series that I'm sure we'll discuss later on. <laughs> but but speaking of of um, young Steph having having questions for my mom about what some of the jokes in Faulty Towers meant, we were watching it one night and we went into the next episode because it was a tape, so it just went right in. And flowery twats popped up, and my parents just explode with laughter, <laughs> and they can't and they can't stop. And That's the best. I'm, what does that mean? And my mom told me it's a bad word for vagina. Mm-hmm. And I I do think, though, that it's a worse word over here than it is over there. Because even just the pronunciation of twat sounds dirtier than twat. Yeah, I guess so. Don't you think? <laughs> and, and you would call someone a twat over there to mean an idiot. But if I called someone a twat over here, it'd be like, uh... <laughs> okay (laughs) i don't think i mean do people use it a lot over here i think of it as being a mainly british word i don't you don't hear a lot of twat these days in the u.s no because i think i think it's a dirty word i think i think it's a way dirtier word you hear a lot of the c word and that's like considered to be the worst word ever over here over there it's no big deal but women have reclaimed the c word in a way and we hear it probably more than we would have 
back in the day. And I still would never want anyone to call me the Sea World. Sea World. <laughs> you Shamu. <laughs> oh my, my blackfish. Oh God. My point is with the Sea Word, it has become a sort of political topic. There are people who are for using it. We're reclaiming it. We can call each other bitch and the Sea World. C-word, C-world, C-word, you know, but at the the same time, I've never referred to you that way. And if I were to try to start now, I don't think I'd do a good job of just pretending it's a perfectly (laughs) casual thing. Hey, twat, what's up? (laughs) Or or the C-word. I I keep wanting to say C-world. I keep wanting to say (laughs) C-world. Um... Yeah. So no, it it is still the worst word, but we're we're hearing it now more casually used, I think, on the regular than we are hearing twat. Sure. So I so I think that in that respect, twat is at least a dirtier word than pussy. Sure. Although oh, I think that pussy might be my least favorite of all these words. Yeah. Yeah, because it's so common and because I think it's like the way that it's quantified, the way that it's used as a general word that refers to the entirety of all pussies everywhere, or the idea that that it's used interchangeably with women or with sex as a commodity. I just think it's really gross. And I don't like that that it's used to insult men and emasculate them by by saying that they're wimps. Because honestly, like pussies can take a lot more than testicles. So Oh, I'm I'm completely with you on all that. Any vagina related insult, I find I find very offensive as a woman. Uh, I don't mind if the actual organ is referred to as such. I don't have a problem with the c word used anatomically, but I the I'm more offended by the idea that it is so offensive. That's what offends me. Is that the worst thing in the world that you can be is a vagina? No. There are way worse things you could be. Oh, yeah. What about an appendix? That's completely useless and can kill you. <laughs> The worst thing, I mean, like the worst thing a vagina can do to you is it gave you life. You're welcome. Yeah. I mean, why don't, why don't we call people melanoma? <laughs> Let's start it. But I mean, in, in, in the throes, Kaylee, <laughs> I wouldn't want to hear twat if I had to choose. <laughs> I just spat tea all over my laptop with that one. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that would take me out of the moment. Sure. Whereas pussy wouldn't. Yeah. And and you know what would? What? Anatomical references to the actual parts. Because you were talking about how you don't like how the word pussy refers to the organ in its entirety. But I think if a man politely said to me, labia, in the throes, I'd be really confused. When I said in its entirety, I don't mean within a specific woman. I mean like all in general. Okay. I mean, like how we would say nature or moose or like any any word that is both singular and plural and all encompassing. You naughty moose. You naughty moose. <laughs> Bringing it full circle. <laughs> no, no. Okay, I get you. But, but do you mean as in... I'll use it in context. Like, I'm gonna get some... Yeah, no, I think we're both saying the same thing. I'm gonna get some pussy. I need some pussy. Yeah, oh, gross. Or like, I love pussy or... Yeah, no. It, uh, no. Yeah. yeah. It should be a pussy. Right, because I don't love dick. I mean, maybe individuals I can assess on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. But I don't just want some dick. <laughs> We've gotten quite off topic. Oh, speaking of which, I typed Faulty Towers porn into Google last week. 
<laughs> and nothing. Oh, that's a shame. I was minorly disappointed by it as well. I was I was hoping for like a really sexy Latin Manuel, like in a in a Ooh. speedo, like coming in and maybe <laughs> Yeah, no, you could see there's so much opportunity there because there's already there's so much farce. Like you would just need to to make it like X rated and take what's already there. The oh. Germans would be a great episode because the end would just be a big old German orgy. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, and we've got a we've got a sexy African doctor, you oh, know, yeah. Sybil's in the hospital bed, and it's just her toenail. And the psychiatrist, absolutely. Oh, like completely. you could just you could have him just straight up fuck the the bosomy Australian chick. Yeah. And then Sybil walks in and is jealous, but then joins in too. Could have a gay scene between Manuel and the Greek chef. Oh yes, very Manuel. sweet. Manuel, yeah. he doesn't love me. I want oh. Manuel. That's, come on, internet. You've given us so much porn. Why is Faulty Towers your one gap? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I meant, Steph. Um, I want to go back a bit and talk about the idea of a flawed protagonist. Okay. Because that's something that I think we're seeing increasingly in American comedies, especially as we move towards, you know, premium subscription services and streaming. And it's not all just network based sitcoms where the characters have to be likable. Certainly in dramas, there's a lot of antiheroes. And then there's a lot of edgy comedies where you don't really like anybody. And I find that for all his flaws, Basil Fawlty is a character that I still am rooting for and like, I mean, except for when he's physically abusing his staff, I'm still rooting for him ultimately. And I still deeply love him. I I think it comes back to what I was saying earlier about how in the American adaptations of Faulty Towers, the main characters are just so cool and aloof and they don't care. And so you can't care about them if they don't care about anything, even if all that they care about is something as simple as being more respectable in British society or, you know, a a little piece of candy like Mr. Bean in the church pew or or pens like Pauline in the League of Gentlemen. You need to give them something that they care about in order for you to care about them. And if you just show that little sliver of their humanity, you will forgive all manner of other sins. And in a lot of American comedies with unlikable protagonists, you're just missing that core vulnerability that makes them human. Right. I'm willing to forgive a lot in my fictional characters. They do not have to be perfect. They do not have to be Superman or George Bailey, but there has to be something recognizable and relatable in them. And I think that Basil definitely fits the bill at, for, for all his flaws. I just want to watch him forever. I'm, and I'll settle for just the 12 episodes that we got. I'm in complete agreement with you. Every single one of the characters has something that makes you forgive them for any wrongdoing they, they may commit. Yeah. Sybil wants to go on holiday. She hasn't had a holiday in eight mm-hmm. years. And she hasn't straight up left Basil. So you know that she's, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah, kind loyal. of a good lady. Because mm-hmm. she totally could have left Basil. And she, she makes mention of it more than once. She's also extremely hurt when she thinks that he forgot the anniversary again. Oh, yeah. Oh, we haven't even talked about that episode at all that's just another example of doing something so stupid in order to save face kind of like you were saying last week about the logic of toddlers thinking well it's better to shit my pants than to tell my mom that i have to go to the bathroom or it's easier to hide the steak tartare in various places in this restaurant than it is to send my order back it's easier for him to hurt his wife's feelings and let her think that he did nothing for their anniversary than to admit to all of the guests that he had lied to them. He he introduces them as, oh, here's this northern woman. Oh, we've met before. It's so, oh, it's so heartbreaking, but it's also so funny. That is the most in 
insane part because in that moment he could have redeemed he himself. could have told the entire story and they, oh yeah and they all would have laughed himself included if he were not basil faulty he's got so much pride for a man who is constantly humiliating himself in a variety of ways he's so easily embarrassed and that again is a, a bit of vulnerability that makes you feel for him but instead he he risks the dissolution of his marriage <laughs> we had talked about doing this uh do we want to do shag marry kill for these characters although since there's four i'm not sure what the other option would be um i'm down to do a shag marry kill but yeah it would depend on who's included because well i was thinking as, as much as i love basil i think the only correct option is to kill basil i think yeah. you'd have to marry and shag the women and i, I would just give manuel a hug frankly <laughs> Yeah. I'd be friends with him. No, I, I would love to be friends with Manuel. I would let him make me paella. I'm sure it's quite good. Maybe he could be your roommate. You could live with him and his, his rat. 100% I would live with Manuel. <gasps> yeah, okay. So let's make roommate be the, the fourth option when there's shows with more than three characters. Okay, yeah. Fuck, marry, kill, roommate. Flatmate. <laughs> would you fuck Polly and marry Sybil I, or would you marry Polly I and fuck think, Sybil? I think I'd marry Sybil. Because I think that she would be a perfectly fine wife to someone who wasn't as terrible as Basil. Yeah. Like, I could get along with her. No, she she likes she likes to have fun. She she looks good. She likes to get away. She likes to play golf. She has interests Absolutely. that she never gets to really explore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's a good one. Now, I know that we've talked about how there are terrible American remakes and how there's kind of one legitimate American equivalent. But aside from, you know, B. Arthur and that apparently Emmy Award winning actor who plays Royal Payne. John LaRoquette. Yes. Who would kind of be if they were to make it in 2018? And to make it good. I don't know. Well, I mean, I've, I mentioned Nicolas Cage earlier as like the bad example and the, the opposite way to go. But if but someone who would be an actually who would be good at the subtleties of of Basil's anger that's a good question. I don't know. Do you have any ideas? Well, I'm trying to think of the subtleties of the anger and the physical comedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'd probably cast someone like, well, no, maybe Steve Carell's too old at this point. Why would he be too old? Well, he's already done a, a British, a successful British TV show remake where he's been right. the, the weird guy in the room. That's true. What if they got Adam Sandler? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I know that would be your dream come true. Just all of your oh, loves no, combined. No. He, 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 could, he could just make a movie. Rob Schneider would obviously be Manuel. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> and then maybe Sybil would be like Jen Aniston and Polly would be... Who's the Sports Illustrated model? You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> oh, I don't know. No, no. you know what? It, it should be Selena Gomez. <laughs> Faulty Towers, the movie produced by Happy Madison. Well, all right. No, like, ima imagine him beating his car and imagine... Oh, my like God, we haven't even talked about that. That's one of my favorite moments. I lost it when I when he pulls out that branch and starts just going at it. It's so... It's, it goes back to what I said about the impotent rage. Like, he's not going to cause any damage. It's just so funny to watch him display these emotions so so childishly and so largely. He feels things very strongly, and that's what's so great about him. There's also really nothing quite like an English person yelling the word bastard, and especially <laughs> yes. if it's the words you bastard. It is so funny that he screams you bastard at that car. It's, 
it's perfect. It's, it's not so quite good. the same if someone in it with with any other accent says it. That's one of the words that's that's their word. They use it way more than it's we like do. It's like twat. <laughs> Bastard and twat just sound really wrong, but Bastard, Bastard and, and twat, twat are perfect. <laughs> and you know, what watching him beat the car when when I was a kid, that was funny because it was physical and zany and it's funny to be now because I get it. <laughs> See, as a New Yorker, I don't. Sorry. Okay. Although I think I've I've wanted to do that to several subway cars. So never mind. I, I withdraw my comment. <laughs> also, there's that excellent moment where he opens up the serving dish that is supposed to be the duck that he's gone to the restaurant to go get. And it's a trifle. And he covers it up immediately. And it's that perfect Schrodinger's cat moment of if I'm not looking at the trifle, it's not actually there. And then when he starts digging <laughs> into it to see just if there's any duck inside, Ugh. it's so believable because they establish from the very beginning that that is normal behavior in, in this part of the world and, and from this person. And you're not sitting there thinking, no one does that. You're going, oh, Basil, I'm so sorry. <laughs> there's a reason for every weird thing that he does. It's not just a goofy kind of non sequitur moment. Well, going back to what we said last week about Mr. Bean, he obeys his own logic. Mm -hmm. And every single character on this is so well written because they are consistent within their own specific and bizarre rules. Right. You couldn't take a line of dialogue and assign it to another character and have it make sense, except maybe with some of the barbs traded by by Sybil and Basil. There's a couple that might be interchangeable, right. but for the most part, they really all have their own distinct voices. Yeah, they definitely do. Okay, I, I did absolutely have a dream a couple weeks ago that was 100% inspired by the episode of Pain that I watched. Oh, no. Because in the terrible episode, the Sybil character, who's not Sybil, suggests that they introduce an hourly rate. And Pain, being the Basil character, says, no, that's disgusting. This isn't a sex hotel or whatever he says. But then some young attractive horny people come in saying hey man we need a room for the afternoon <laughs> and so Payne gives them like a room that's already occupied by an old married couple and they're on a walk and he says you have to be gone by two o'clock and then the old couple comes back early and oh my god there's a young couple in the room having sex and so he knocks on the door where the young couple is and opens it and they're just standing with their stomachs together, like their abdomens are, are pressed together and they're in their underwear. And it's because their belly button rings have stuck together. <laughs> like they both have belly button rings, A. That makes me so uncomfortable. I hate this. Go on. Not saying that men can't have belly button rings, but... I'm saying that, and I'm saying that women can't either. Sorry, I have a thing about belly buttons. Go on. <laughs> oh, my, my mom always told me not to get a belly button ring because she was worried it was going to pierce my fallopian tubes. Whoa, um, someone needs to give mom a biology lesson. <laughs> she read that it happened. Your fallopian tube, where is your belly button in this? I mean, everybody's belly buttons are a little bit different, and I feel like if somebody had a belly button positioned in a certain way and they went to the wrong place and their abdomens were hacked open. I hate this conversation more than I've hated anything. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Just anatomy and needles and uh, no, continue with your dream. Well, I think it was actually maybe a whole day and a half or two days later that I realized that a big part of a dream I had had was about two people who were stuck together by their belly button rings. Oh, God. And <laughs> that was 
That was it. That was the most memorable part of that episode of Pain was that stupid, nonsensical, oh, don't you just hate it when you go to bang your boyfriend, but his belly button ring gets tangled up in yours? Oh, God. Oh, I just... No, no, I wanted to say that that reminds me of another great, like, very brief little visual gag is the blow-up doll in The Kipper and the Corpus when they go into a room and that guy's blowing up a sex doll. It's such a, they they don't even need to say anything. If you were just listening to the episode, you would miss it. Oh, and that's another thing. Did you know that they aired these on the radio, too? Yes, and I think that my dad had them. I know I, I listened to them. Yeah, no, my my mom apparently used to listen to them too all the time. And I'm sure that, you know, you would sacrifice little visual gags like that, but the scripts are so tight that they would absolutely work if you're only listening. Well, I know that at least the tapes that my dad had, there were moments where Manuel would narrate what was going on, but oh, it was supposed to be like in his mind, like Manuel was the host. And so I I know that for certain he, he narrated the misunderstanding between that woman who's obsessed with her dog and putting the sausage on the table and under the table and the plates and he'd be like so i put them under the table and it would be oh you know what that's actually an uncharacteristic poly moment is when she puts hot sauce on the dog's sausages as satisfying as it is no trust me like i again violence is not funny in real life and violence against animals is not funny in real life but like violence for some reason like when dogs die <laughs> not that this dog died but like didn't the dog die no did he no it's think that they said that he's dying oh didn't it die did it maybe it did off screen clearly oh yeah well whatever it was hilarious it doesn't seem like something polly would do yeah no i don't know i feel like maybe on polly's revenge scale that seems more realistic than her doing something more overtly rude like shouting or screaming or or hitting the dog or hitting the woman like basil might do i feel like she she would go behind the scenes and just kind of quietly pour poisonous hot sauce all over some sausages sure well maybe i'm wrong and we can cut this whole bit <laughs> no i i think it bears mentioning because it it is the cruelest thing she does it is it's it's also the only like really unprofessional thing that she does right and she knows that if there's diarrhea all over the dining room it's going to end up being maybe her problem yeah <laughs> yeah well Revenge is not always uh, something that's thought out. But there are a lot of dead dogs in British shows I love. Oh my god, I know. For some reason, this makes me sound like a monster because like in America, a dead dog is such a tearjerker, like old yeller Marley and me, whatever. But but it's really funny to me. It's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, two of my favorite moments in League of Gentlemen. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that later. But like, oh, I remember you saying that was the moment that hooked you in the pilot. I thought it was one of the most twisted and fucked up things I'd ever seen and it turned me on to the show. Not in a sexual way. (laughs) (laughs) But in like a, oh, all right, let's put on another one. Oh, and also we, we barely talked about The Kipper and the Corpse, which is another of my favorite episodes. Dead body humor is something that I also find so funny. That's again, that that appears in my favorite episode of Psychoville and another of my favorite episodes of League of Gentlemen. There's something that's so funny about like hiding a corpse or having to deal with a corpse. And as someone who played a corpse in a student film in college, I know how very difficult it is to play a corpse. So props to you, guy who played the dead guest in The Kipper and the Corpse. But dead body comedy, it's a very specific subgenre, but I just love it. And I think that if like Weekend at Bernie's had been written by very smart British people, it would be my favorite movie. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I've, I've only ever seen Weekend at Bernie's 2. Just to... <laughs> Why? 
it was at a sleepover. I was in the fourth grade and I didn't vote for these video choices, but we took a big old walk to Blockbuster, which I miss that. I I miss doing that. But yeah, all these other bitches, all these other twats and shamus. Well, yeah, I I didn't vote for this, but but I'm actually really proud that it's one of the most unique double features that's probably ever aired in any living room. It was Jaws 3. What? Followed by Weekend at Bernie's Part 2. Were the originals not available or, or were these girls that dumb? Um, maybe a little from column A, a little from column B. It was it was clearly one of the sleepovers where I was kind of the novelty guest. Okay. <laughs> and so yeah, I don't I don't think I really had a say. Wow. Because I I I wouldn't have chosen that. No person in their right mind would have chosen the sequels to those movies. You know what though? I've seen Weekend at Bernie's too, and I I don't feel like I absolutely must go back and watch the original. Is that fair to say? No, that's fair. I mean, I'm happy that I finally saw Jaws, let me tell you. Yeah, no, Jaws is great. And there are movies where the, where the sequels are as good as or better. I mean, the Toy Story trilogy certainly comes to mind. Uh, High School Musical. Uh, I didn't see Paddington 1, but I fucking loved Paddington 2. I fucking loved Paddington 2. I didn't see Paddington <laughs> I've never loved Hugh Grant more, and I already love him. But the dead body humor and, and Weekend at Bernie's, I still <laughs> love that, again, that episode didn't then just devolve into Weekend at Bernie's because the- <laughs> Weekend at Basil's. <laughs> because the, the hiding of a body is is so goofy, but- Nobody loses their distinct voice. And I, I absolutely love how Basil, he discovers the dead body, but he's such an asshole. And he's so annoyed by how rude this guy is because he wanted breakfast in bed that he just assumes that he's cold and unresponsive because he's a dickhead and not because he's very clearly dead. And then when he tries to hide the kipper because he thinks that he's liable for the body and it's sticking out of his sweater vest, it's so yeah, perfect. Even though the, he's been dead for, for a while before they even serve him the expired kippers. And again, with the way that his emotions just twist so suddenly when he's really angry and upset and worried, but then he finds out that the, the guest died like 10 hours ago and he's like jumping for joy that it's not his fault for serving him expired kippers i know i know the littlest things set him off but the littlest things also then make him happy well and speaking of expired kippers (laughs) the basil the rat episode where they read off what poor condition the kitchen is kept in i kind of have to go guys how many guests do you even have at a time you have one fridge why are you fucking this up so badly (laughs) and i love it i love that they're fucking it up that badly but you're like terry Get your shit together. Well, maybe it is because it's a smaller Sexy business. Sexy ass shit. And there's, there's not that many people. Maybe they're understaffed. Because, you know, if they've got one chef, one waiter, one chambermaid. They are clearly understaffed because the chef goes on a date one night and they don't have... Celery, apples, walnuts, grapes. That's also how I learned what a Waldorf salad was. I've never had one myself, but I'll never forget the ingredients. Oh, same here. My dad still loves saying celery, apples, walnuts, grapes. It's... It's a thing. Oh, that's delightful. I just, I love when when something reaches you at an early age and just becomes completely integrated into your brain and becomes part of your life. And uh, I, I know that that happened with both of us with this show and probably with many of our listeners. And for those of you who are just now discovering this show or who came to it later in life, I hope that you love it just as much as we do. Yes, that was very nice. Yeah. 
So join us next week when we will be discussing Father Ted. <gasps> Father Ted week is coming up. Oh my God, I am so goddamn excited. I know. This every week is just going to be so delightful because our homework is to watch things that we love and then talk about them. Oh my God, I get to go watch Father Ted yes. right now. We're both so lucky and so are you guys because if you want to listen to our episode next week and know what we're talking about, then you also have to go watch Father go Ted. Watch so Father go Ted. find it. It's available online. Uh Enjoy. All right. From all of us over here at Anglophilia. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye and don't mention the war. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Anglophilia on iTunes. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Anglopodcast. Toodle pip. What'd you call me?